I thought originally when we were going to be in this section today of Psalm 129 and 130, I thought we'd be able to get all the way through 131, because 131 is only three verses long. But after I got into 131, that's going to take a little while, even though there's only three verses, or a good three verses. Not that the others aren't, but I mean, it's there's a, there's a lot there. And then there's a lot that we're going to pack in today in Psalm 129 and 130. Again, <clears throat> these are two of the Psalms of Ascents that goes through Psalm 134. And these are Psalms that were quoted by people as they were traveling to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts. But Psalm 129 begins by reflecting on what the nation has endured. It says, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel say now say. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. You know, the hatred and the affliction of the Jewish people began well before the time of Christ. Why? I would say because Satan knew that they were God's chosen people. And from them, God would send his promised Messiah. The nation of Israel has emerged, regardless of the hatred, due to the protection of God from multiple persecutions and attempts to wipe them from the face of the earth. The time of Israel's youth, it says, they have afflicted me from my youth, was when Jacob was alive with his sons, because the nation of Israel is named after Jacob. That's another name for Jacob. And before Jacob died, they had traveled to Egypt for food from a severe drought. We know the story of how Joseph was able to provide for his kindred. And then some years later, their lands were taken and the people became a nation of slaves to the Pharaoh. Now, since that time, the nation has had a struggle to survive, but they have survived. And the struggle continues to this day with the many enemies that want Israel blotted out from the face of the earth. Again, why? No other nation anywhere has had this challenge. It's all due to Satan. And that all by itself is one proof that the God of the Bible exists. It is said that Frederick the Great, who was the king of Prussia, questioned the truthfulness of the Bible. And he had become skeptical in listening to that idiot called Voltaire. He thought he was an intellectual. I mean, we had people say, oh yeah, these people are very smart. They're, in, they're intellectually smart. But they're blind to the truth. But Frederick the Great had listened to people like Voltaire. And I got, I got a page all goofed up here, so I can have to go back to get it right. Anyway, and he questioned the truthfulness of the Bible. And to be convinced of the Bible's truthfulness, the king wanted a very short answer. He didn't want a long 80-page treatise. 
of the truth of the Bible. So a chaplain replied, Frederick, I probably didn't call him Frederick, but he said, I can give you proof in a single word. He was skeptical, but intrigued. He said, what's the answer to the truth of the Bible? He said, Israel. And Frederick got real quiet. Israel. Now the opening of Psalm 129 is similar to Psalm 124. In 124 it starts out, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Very similar, verse 2, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. It's interesting that it doesn't say, It wasn't in my youth, they have afflicted me in my youth, but it says, from my youth. Israel's existence as a nation has been under a constant challenge throughout his existence from the beginning with Jacob and continues down to this day. The Jewish people have been hated throughout history. James Boyce points out that even in the Middle Ages, and this is, we don't study the Middle Ages much. I don't, right? I know a little bit about it. Mostly come from stupid movies that misrepresent it. But, <laughs> but Boyce points out that they, they suffered in the Middle Ages by virtually all European powers which expelled them from their territories repeatedly or else confined them to Jewish ghettos. So it's been going on throughout history. So I went in and I just typed in the internet. Sometimes you can find some interesting stuff, sometimes disgusting, sometimes good. But I typed in, quote, nations that hate Israel. And I quickly found the following answer. It says the in, in in this one site says the following countries have no diplomatic ties with Israel. Their hatred ranges from a low or ambivalent to very high. Iran is by far the worst. And here are some of the nations. Afghanistan, Algeria, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Bolivia. I mean, they're not all Middle Eastern. Brunei, Chad, Comoros, I don't know that one. Cuba, Djibouti, Guinea, Indonesia. Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Lebanon, Libya, Malaysia, Mali, Mauritania, Morocco, Nicaragua, Niger, North Korea, Oman, Pakistan, Qatar, South, uh, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tunisia, United Arab Emirates, Venezuela, and Yemen. That's quite a bit. And it says, many European countries, despite their ties with Israel, are heavily biased against it. And the countries that are most adversarial toward Israel are the Islamic countries with only Turkey and the former communist countries in Central Asia, 
and Eastern Europe recognizing Israel without issue. Now the communist countries in Central Asia, the former ones would be like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and those types of things. It says, Israel is recognized by three Arab countries, Egypt, Palestine, and Jordan, but those recognitions comes with strings attached. Israel is hated. And that's what we read back here in Psalm 129. And if we look at who's behind the hatred, we can turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 5. It speaks to this. We start reading in Revelation 12, 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's why the nations hate Israel. It's because of Jesus Christ. And then we go on in verse 3 of Psalm 129. is a description of the mistreatment of Israel, giving us of the idea of a painful event comparing it to how a farmer would dig into a field as what would happen during a plowing. It says, The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. And this was like what was happening to the nation. So as a farmer would come and cut the ground so they could plant. So what's happening to Israel. They're being cut. But it goes on in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The fact that Israel still exists today is a testament to God's protection and the faithfulness to his promise. God is called righteous in verse 4. That God is righteous ties right into his faithfulness. He has been and will continue to be faithful to his covenant with Israel. And you know, as I as I type this and as I read through this, you can just look at the the daily and the weekly events that happen in Israel, and um, the attacks that they're you know they're un- they could be going undergoing attacks right now. You know, I mean, it it is just constant. But God is righteous. I I um, watched a video after I typed all this up of just the. 1948 war when Israel became a nation and I think the guy said he said they had like two airplanes and five tanks and something else and they were being you know swarmed over swarmed by all these other nations and they won why because God won if you want an interesting book to read it's not written from a Christian perspective 
but it's got a lot of interest to it, and I'll lend it to you if you give it back to me. It's called The Idiot's Guide to the Middle East Crisis. Very interesting stuff. And, uh, yeah, God, God protected Israel. And then we go to verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of Israel be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. <coughs> now verse... <coughs> excuse me. Verse 5 begins with this imprecatory prayer to God, asking God to judge those who hate Israel. Now give that a little thought. Asking God to judge those who hate him and his people. Now today, people are more and more open in their hatred of Christianity. This starts with those who are open worshipers of Satan, those who are atheists, who mock God, both in private and whatever forum they can use. This week I watched a compilation of comedic entertainers who demonstrated their pure hatred of Christianity. And some of these were well-known people. That you would recognize them. These are, and then there are those who are not as openly hostile, but what they promote, even sometimes under a banner that they would call Christian, are every bit as blasphemous as those who openly mock God. The various pride events and marches for abortion rights also mock the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. And then some like to promote, well, God is love. God is love. Do not judge. Yeah. Jesus met with sinners and did not judge them, so why should you judge us? And other such nonsense. But here we have a prayer, and I would say another prayer, because there's others in the Psalms as well, for God to judge the world and judge the wicked. It is fine and biblical to ask God to judge the wicked. But as we pray, we should pray that they repent and turn to God in saving faith. And many have. There are some that said, boy, I was over here and God saved me. And many more will come to him. We don't know how many. It depends on how long Christ tarries before he comes. And their turning will glorify God. And the other thing is all of God's judgment will glorify himself. We want God to judge so that he would be glorified. Not so that it would be easier for us. That's, that's the rub. That's where we've got to get it right. Spurgeon wrote on this section, If this be an imprecation, let it stand. For our heart says amen to it. But it is justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt 
the good should be brought to naught. It is but justice that those... I get those words in the right order, it might help. It is but justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt the good should be brought to naught. Those who confound right and wrong ought to be confounded, and those who turn back from God ought to be turned back. How can we wish prosperity... Now, this is not Spurgeon here. How can we wish prosperity on those who would destroy that which is dearest to our hearts? The present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, if a man loves the Lord Jesus Christ, he is styled a fanatic. And if he hates the power of evil, he's called a bigot. Looking closer at this section of verses, there are things that the writer asks, is asking God to do. They are in verse 5 that they be put to shame. This shows that their failure to destroy Israel will be put to shame. You're not going to succeed. You'll be shamed. In verses 6 and 7, that they have no success. The writer gives us the image that shows their failure. At that time, houses had dirt roofs where seeds, even if they took root, were in shallow soil, and then there was no way, even if they took root and came up, there's no way to water the top of your house. And so these conditions would make any grass that grew die out quickly before it would be tall enough for any practical purpose. That's in verses 6 to 7. And then in verse 8, they request that they get no blessing or no blessing from God. It was common at that time to bless those who worked in the fields. And we can go to Ruth chapter 2 and see this when Boaz went out to his field. And he said, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Here is the request that God withhold blessings from his enemies. Now, interestingly, to me anyway, none of these requests of God in dealing how to deal with the enemies deals with eternal damnation. It says, put to shame, no success, no blessing. And I got to thinking about that. And one thing that came to my mind is that do I really understand the magnitude of eternal damnation? I don't think I do. To ask that our enemies be put to shame, to have no success, to receive no blessing from God is one thing. To ask for their eternal damnation is quite another and infinitely more serious. Yes, if the unrepentant do not repent, they will remain eternally damned and separated from God, which is why we should pray for their souls, that they would listen to the Spirit of God and become redeemed through the blood of Christ. That's the proper focus for us. Eternal punishment in hell is taught clearly in the Bible. And it was clearly taught by Jesus. A lot of people don't like that. But if they look and see what he says, he taught it clearly. And we should know more about this subject, but the topic is avoided in much of today's church. 
In most cases, it is ignored. But that hasn't always been the case. Perhaps the most influential sermon of the First Great Awakening that began around 1730 and lasted until about 1750s was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I want to give us a little peek into that impact. It's got me, yeah, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, guys. But it's a good one. Just a little peek into this impact. Stephen Longmeadow, who was a pastor, was there to hear it delivered. It was delivered on July 8, 1741. And this is what Stephen Longmeadow wrote in his diary. He said, Mr. Edwards, who preached a most awakening sermon from Deuteronomy 32-35, and before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? Etc., etc. So that to the ye minister was obliged to desist. Shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. These are the people listening to the sermon. After some time of waiting, the congregation were still so that a prayer was made. And after that, we descend from the pulpit. So this guy was sitting, you know, up, up front. After that, we descend from the pulpit and discoursed with the people. An amazing and astonishing power of God was seen. Several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. And oh, the cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenances that received comfort. Oh, that God would strengthen and confirm. We sung a hymn and prayed and dismissed the assembly. That's what he wrote. Now, it would be worthwhile to read through the full sermon. That's way too long for us to do that. But one paragraph in the sermon we're going to read. Or two, maybe. After Edwards had laid the foundation based on Deuteronomy 32-35, he then stated this. <coughs> now, of course, he's speaking in English that they spoke on back then, so I'll try to make it as clean as possible. He said this. The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure. His arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever in any hand in the preservation of the wicked men one moment. Then he goes on a little bit later. He says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downward with the great weight and pressure towards hell. 
And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf in your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence. The best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more effect, influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly lead, yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for your breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in service, in the service of God's enemies. He just kind of Jumps right on our throats, doesn't he? Reading messages like this one could help us focus on the purpose of Jesus' coming. And we see this in John 10, verse 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what's a good way to close our review of Psalm 129? I think verse 2 states it very clearly. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The Apostle Paul spoke about this <coughs> within the Christian community in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11. There is a similar affliction against Christians, but we have the same God to keep us in his gospel from being prevailed against. Here we read, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power of God, surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to, driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that so death is at work in us, but life in you. And notice the reason for all this, <coughs> that the life of Jesus, this is in verse 11, so that life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, that God be glorified and others will be drawn to him in saving faith. That real quickly is Psalm 129 with a little rabbit trail. Yes? When I was in high school, I think I was a sophomore or junior, in a literature class, 
used this sermon and studied this sermon in the English class. Mm -hmm. I was probably 15 at the time, and she literally trashed this sermon. And talking about how hateful and how judgmental it was and all that. And I was so young, I really didn't know what to think, or I didn't really have enough Bible knowledge to defend it. But I'll never forget that lesson. And then since then, I've read for myself without any, you know, somebody telling me what they thought it meant. And this is the type of thing that we're afraid to talk about, about what's in these sermons. Mm -hmm. And it's being left out of the churches because they're afraid of this message. They don't think it'll help draw people. Yeah. You know, the seeker-sensitive thing, we don't want to be talking about anything that makes everybody feel bad. Right, but I've always felt bad about that. That, that I just didn't know how to respond. I, I kept silent. Well, I would say that that is a teacher taking advantage of their of their age, and and not basically they're 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 that's that's not the separation of church and state because they're actually giving you, you know, bad teaching. Yeah. And Connie, well, I was talking to her about this. She said, yeah, she said, I studied that in class, and, I, and we went through it when I was in college. And, yeah, I got, I mean, they, don't, they aren't saying, boy, this is, the, this is the best thing in the world. This is a great sermon. Yeah. yeah. I remember I read, a, I, I, I wrote a paper on, uh, I think it was that, or uh, another thing called the Puritan Dilemma and I thought I did a pretty good job in the paper. And I, re I remember, I don't still have it, but the professor wrote back and said, I don't think you read the same book. No, I don't think you understand the same book. You know, um, but yeah. yeah. That's what we need. So you get a bad grade? I don't remember. You, I ended up getting a B. Well, I ended up with a B in the class, so I was fine. I wasn't a, I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar, so B didn't hurt me. That was the one professor, I'll never forget this. He read totally what he, his, prepar his preparation. And we were sitting in his class, and he was talking, and it was about the Revolutionary War. And he said, and all these things happened in the Revolution, every war. He had to turn the page to see how the the word finished. I thought, well, that's not very good. Anyway, Psalm 130. I could say a few more about that professor, but we won't do that. <clears throat> psalm 30, 130. Again, a psalm of ascents. In in his commentary on the Psalms, James Boyce called Psalm 130, quote, one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of the say of salvation by grace on the basis of Christ's atonement. Martin Luther was another student of Scripture who loved Psalm 130. He called it one of the 
Pauline Psalms. Along with three other ones. Because of its offer of forgiveness by grace apart from human works. And it begins with the writer in the depths of despair in verse 1. And ends in verse 7 writing about the redemption that the Lord provides. So it starts out, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So, so perhaps the first question to ask, why is the writer crying out to the Lord out of the depths? Is it from outside attacks, from physical issues, or something else? And as you might expect, there's all kinds of different views. But John Owen hit it pretty well on the head that when, when he wrote, and he was a theologian who lived from 1616 to 1683. Yeah, there were great theologians back in those days. He wrote this, and I put it in your notes. He cries out under the weight and waves of his sins. The ensuing psalm makes evident, desiring to be delivered from these depths out of which he cried, he deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness. And it is sin alone from which forgiveness is a deliverance. Sin is the disease. Affliction is only a symptom of it. That God pricks us of our sin is a good thing. Sadly, many professing Christians live in very little awareness of God. Where God has been abolished and awareness of sin is inevitably abolished as well. Now, as a quote from Boyce, he says, Where God has been abolished and awareness of sin is inevitably abolished as well. Understanding our sin and how desperate our condition apart from God is something we need to grab onto. While it is unpopular to preach about, just like hell is unpopular to preach about, it is sorely needed. Our good friend and heretic Joel Osteen and others have said that they don't preach about sin because people know they are sinners. Ah, no. They know that you might be a sinner, or the guy across the street, or the person who murdered those guys up at up in Moscow. Oh yeah, they're sinners. Not me. <clears throat> now they know they're not perfect, but we all live in the world of blame, of excuse, of misunderstanding, and minimizing the aspect of sin in our lives. And I think we're probably guilty of minimizing that. Very easy to do. In the initial verses of this psalm, the writer tells of the depths of his soul in anguish and then cries for mercy. This reminded me of what Jesus pointed out in a parable he gave in Luke 18, 9-14. Here we read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Jesus said in verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We live in a world today where man loves to exalt himself. Now, he loved to exalt himself back in Jesus' time, too. I think that with some of the uh, ways that we can promote self-exaltation today, you can you can make it much more known and it's much more um, desired, you know. Verse 3, very interesting and accurate statement that applies to everyone. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Spurgeon commented, you know, he's got lots of comments, obviously, and I can't bring them all in here, or we'd be on, you know, we'd be to Psalm 15 by now, I think. But say, he who, uh, here he owns that he cannot stand before the great king in his own righteousness. And he is so struck with the sense of the holiness of God and the rectitude, you know what that is? The rectitude is the moral integrity of the law that he is convinced that no man of mortal race can answer for himself before it judge so perfect concerning a law so divine. No person who has ever lived can do so. And this is brought out by the Apostle Paul in this well-known passage in Romans chapter 3. Starting in verses 10-11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Preach that in Joel Osteen's church. No one does good, not even one. And that quotes, by the way, from Psalm 14. And then in verse 23, that we all know, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ties right into verse 3 of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, the next word in this psalm is the the best word in the whole psalm. But. Thankfully, the psalm and the message from the God doesn't end at verse 3. No, we cannot stand before a holy God. And it's not even close. But with you, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness is available from God. It's a massively important and beautiful topic. Psalm 103, verses 6 and verse 12 also show a glimpse 
of the forgiveness of God. In verse 6, says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the, I love this one, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Just go to sleep tonight and think about that. We could get into a long study on the forgiveness of God, and it's a study worth looking into. But one thing that needs to be noted is that God, in his holiness, does not and cannot simply look the other way. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. And 2 Corinthians 5.17-21 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old man has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ. That, that, that is in Christ. I read the next word and it didn't fit because I forgot that word in. That is in verse 19. That is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Psalm 130 has a few things to say about forgiveness from God. In verse 4, we see that his forgiveness is inclusive. But with you, there is forgiveness. It's not just for a limited list of offenses. There is no restriction. There is no limit placed on God's forgiveness. It simply and beautifully states, with you there is forgiveness. And then, in verse 4, it's also in the present tense. It is not something that's going to come about later. Now, Boyce points out that in the Hebrew, there is no verb in the sentence. Now, we don't have sentences like that. This makes a literal translation more like, with you forgiveness. It then shows that there is no earning forgiveness, as if we could ever earn that. And now, while it's not stated specifically, God's forgiveness is there for the person who cries out to God for mercy that we had in verse 1 and 2. And he trusts God for that forgiveness in verse 4. And then what do we see? In verse 4, God's forgiveness leads to a fear or a, refer a reverence for the, and awe of God. If this is not present in the life of a person who has asked for forgiveness, 
we need to ask the question on their motives and what they really think about God. The impact of knowing God, that knowing that God has forgiven you and forgiven your sin should bring about a reverence and an awe of God, a desire to show thankfulness for what he has done. It should motivate us to honor God and to follow God in our lives. When the more we think and understand our forgiveness, there should be a response to that. And then we go on in verse 5 and 6. The writer is waiting for the Lord. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and, I, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Then he repeats that for emphasis, more than the watchman for the morning. The writer is waiting for the Lord. What is he waiting and watching for? It isn't forgiveness because God has already provided that. He is waiting for the same thing that we are waiting for today. Titus 2.13 says this, We are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now if you want to have some fun, just ponder that for a while. What is that going to be like? We don't have a clue, but it's going to be phenomenal. It's also beautifully stated in the next to the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22.20. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And with each and every passing day, and now that we're at the first day of the year, with each passing year, it's coming closer and closer and closer. And there's a very possible, might happen even before next week. We won't get to Psalm 131 then. But it could be a while yet. But it's going to be cool when it happens. And then we need to follow the advice of verse 7. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. You know, people look high and low where to put their hope. And every choice accepting putting their hope in the Lord is an extremely poor and ineffective choice. Acts 4.12 says it very clearly. And there is no salvation in and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No, there are not multiple paths to God. Sorry, Oprah. And others. There are not multiple paths to God. He hasn't given us that choice. Why? We could get into that for a long time. But right here in Acts twelve, there is no one else no other name by given among men by which we must be saved god does not look at intentions and sincerity as acceptable you know christianity is exclusive and that's a good thing it's the only true path of forgiveness and redemption 
And we should treat that as a strength and not something to shy away from. And share it when and where we can. The exclusivity of Christianity. It is exclusive. And it also is true. And we could get into a lot of other things as to why that's true, but then we would go way past time. But that real quickly is Psalm 130. The psalm which is one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of salvation by grace on the basis of Christ's atonement. Now you know why I didn't get to 131. We'll cover that next time. Let's pray.